Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for a very exciting interview. All of our interviews are exciting, of course. I'm going to say that every single week because I'm not lying on this show, but a particularly exciting one today because it's a dual interview today, our third dual interview after Tali and Dean a few weeks back, and of course, Jaden and Connor before the Tokyo Olympics. We've got Elise and Jordan Wood on the show today, our first ever husband and wife pairing. Both canoeists competed in Tokyo and back in Rio 2016, and a great chat here with both Elise and Jordan, our very first taste of canoeing, of course, on the show. Explain the differences between canoe and kayak and what we should really refer to it as, how they got into the sport and how a lot of surf lifesavers end up in the sport in Australia. Why not a lot of surf lifesavers don't go into slalom when it comes to canoe kayak? And just also all about their experiences in Tokyo from how they felt they went in terms of the competition side of things right through to in terms of the lifestyle and what it was like there at the Tokyo Olympics compared to their first Olympics back in Rio. So a very insightful and a fun chat here. They recorded this a few weeks back when they were in quarantine when they had just returned back from Tokyo. So you'll hear a few references to how they're living their lives in quarantine and I'm sure Elise and Jordan if you're listening to this right now you probably have even forgotten that you're in quarantine and you're well and truly back into normal every single day life so uh, here's a little bit of a time capsule for you both but here's our chat with Olympic canoeists Elise and Jordan Wood So excited for our next guest here on Off the Podium today. Our first ever athletes from the sport of canoe or canoe kayak. We're going to get to the bottom of this throughout this interview. They are two-time Olympians, both of them having competed in both Rio and recently in Tokyo. Multiple world championships, multiple World Cup medals. They've basically done everything that you can think of in the sport and we're going to learn a lot more about their careers today. And also for the first time, athletes stuck in quarantine, which I'm very intrigued to find out how that's all going and also first time we've had athletes who are married to each other as well which is also another first on the show pleasure to welcome elise and jordan wood to the show guys first of all welcome off the podium thanks for having us thanks for having it i try to get everything in there into the introduction did i did i leave anything else out there anything else you want me to quickly add just before we get into the other Uh, questions I think you pretty much covered it all. Oh, no, no, here's a fun fact um jordan's mum is my coach yes right yeah that would be that would be, you know, a random fact to, to add into the intro. Another one there. Jordan, you also had dreadlocks as well, which I was going to try and fit into the uh, the intro there, but I thought uh, maybe we could squeeze that in. Well, I got it over and done. I'm just ticking off the bingo oh, here. I, I didn't have dreadlocks. I just had one knot. Right. One, one knot, one dreadlock. Dreadlock. 
not plural, dreadlock, yeah. basically. I need to ask, first of all, I mean, you're, you're in quarantine. We're having a bit of a chat off air there about uh, how's, it, how's it all going. But, I mean, are you guys going crazy yet? Are you ready to kind of run out and just experience the real world? Or are you, are you relishing the, the alone time that you guys get together? I'm sure this probably isn't something you get to experience a lot when you're out on the road. Well, um, it's one of those things that's, you know, obviously it's two weeks is quite a long time to be sort of stuck in one spot, but then you can sort of look at it with how often in your life can you, do you have two weeks to pretty much lounge around in your bed and just take it easy? doesn't happen very often. So sort of taking full advantage of it. I think we're lucky though. So we're um, some of the athletes and most of the Olympic team um, are up in Howard Springs in Darwin. Uh, so that's where we are. And it, it's not quite like hotel quarantine. So they're kind of like dongers. And so it's like a single bed and the room's pretty basic. But we have a balcony and the balconies are opposite people. Nice. Um, and you're allowed, you're not allowed off your balcony unless you walk to the laundry <laughs> within your time or uh, you go to the bin. Um, but just being opposite other people and um, having that interaction and that outdoor time is so, so, so good. So we've hit a win with that versus a normal hotel. So, so who are you near? Can you can you give us some goss on some of the other athletes that you're kind of in the vicinity from any other sports or your own sports? And are you able to sort of, you know, go out in the balconies and <laughs> yell at each other and kind of share experiences? We can definitely go out and yell. Um, so Jordan and I on the balconies, like it's four people per balcony, but there's like red lines that you're not allowed to go across. Um, but because we're married, we share kind of two squares if you know what I mean nice. and so on our balcony is my K2 partner Alyssa Bull and one of the girls in our K4 Jamie and then opposite us is Lockie who's in Jordan's K4 um, Anna who is my coach and Jordan's mum so we don't really get much of a rest from the mother-in-law coach <laughs> situation um, and Bernie one of our canoers um, and then there's like basketballers and cyclists near us and the water polo girls are at like a compound over so we can't see them but we can definitely hear them um so yeah good times here all, all things considered i can imagine the basketball guys are probably a bit rowdy aren't they are they still celebrating after the bronze <laughs> i think they were a little bit tired there's only a few of them here i think a few of them dispersed off but i think yeah the first few days they're a little bit tired but pretty funny watching them trying to work out because they're so tall and the balconies obviously have a roof um and like we're quite tall you know we're over six foot and if you try to skip or something the skipping rope hits the roof so they just can't do much with that (laughs) nice nice i I would love to get clarified for us on the show today i'm sure it's a question you both often get when it comes to talking about your sport canoe kayak uh give us the obvious answer here what the difference is and when it comes to explaining it i'm guessing we just refer to you as paddlers is that the correct terminology to describe what type of athletes you both are um yeah i think so i think paddlers is um quite a broad term which is you know pretty uh, pretty much what we are so i think i think if you if you kind of get down to the nitty-gritty um traditionally our sport is called canoeing and it comes or goes way back to i think maybe you know the canadians or whatever and going down rivers in your canoe and transporting things. And so canoeing in the modern age um, is on your knee. Uh, so you're in a kneeling position, one knee back, one knee forward. Um, and you have like half a blade and, and that's so hard. You, you don't have a rudder, so you don't have any steering. It's one of the hardest sports ever. Um, and then kayaking, which is what we do, we sit on our bums um and have like a double blade. Uh, so yeah, that's like the key difference. But I think, 
our sports traditionally canoeing, um, you know, because of way back when. Uh, but yeah, we do have canoe kayak. So yeah. And also, it's. I mean, we were fascinated during Tokyo to kind of talk a lot about it because we sort of explained it as. I guess the way it's covered, it's almost like rowing's, you know, redheaded stepchild. It almost gets forgotten about outside of the rowing. That Australians often talk <laughs> about rowing. It's kind of like, oh, we've got these rowers, it's great. And then the second week comes along and you realise how many great canoeists we've got out there as well. And and I often find it more entertaining. I, I, I always find the, the canoe kayak more entertaining. I mean, is it kind of often lumped in with rowing? Because it's, I guess, you're kind of on the same course. You're, you're both in boats. You've both sort of got some sort of stick apparatus to move you forward. Or is it really so <laughs> separate that we're kind of just being a bit cruel by lumping you in with those rowing bastards? Yeah. Um, I think most people would refer to us as like rowers or if you Sort of even people you've known sort of most of your life they always go oh how's the rowing going you know, oh it's actually it's actually kayaking but yeah and they go oh it's the same thing right and you go oh not really but <laughs> we, we like to say you know we're the smart ones because we go forward yes. whereas the rowers go backwards <laughs> um, and so when we share when we share a canal like for instance at home um, we share a canal with one of the um, schools on the Gold Coast and we have to dodge them because they can't see us. Wow. I think like with what you say, a lot of second week sports at the Olympics, you know, we, we're not spoken about until the second week. Um, and, and that goes across the board with lots of sports. So um, obviously we are very similar to rowing. We do share the same course. And, um, but I mean, they're very different sports. Like our sport's more of a sprinting sport. Um, their sport, rowers are over 2Ks, whereas the furthest we go is 1K. But we also have 200 metres and 500 metres. So it's a lot quicker. The races um, probably are a lot closer and a lot can happen in the race. Um, you know, the boat's a lot harder to keep up and running, whereas a rowing boat, it has really nice glide and it's really smooth. And once you're up and running, kind of you just roll with it. Whereas a kayak, um, you know, it's quite easy to bulk down. And yeah, there's a lot of changes in the race, which makes it pretty exciting. And I imagine it's more of an adaptive sport because obviously you both uh, come from surf life-saving backgrounds, at least obviously yourself kind of that's where you yeah. are. And obviously, Jordan, you've got that, but also, you know, a family coming from uh, the sport as well. So in terms of, I guess, for, for Australians, uh, is this where the majority of athletes do come across from? It's sort of from the surf life-saving area that you kind of move into canoeing and, and use that as part of your surf life-saving or vice versa? I think... Um most of our team are surf lifesavers. Um, and so that's kind of where our talent pool comes from um, as a kind of blanket rule, I guess, in Australia. Um, our main competitions are Europeans, and so they all grow up in a kayak, whereas we don't start kayaking until we're about 15, 16 when you're allowed to jump on a surf ski. Uh, and then you decide that you jump in a kayak to help your technique. So I think, yeah, so many of us do come from surf, and there is that really good crossover between surf ski paddling and kayaking and, and now also like ocean skis and um and that's why i think we like to call ourselves paddlers because you know we're obviously sprint kayakers and that's what we race at the olympics but so many of us dabble in so many other disciplines um and there is so many paddling disciplines out there Jordan, for, for yourself, obviously, as I mentioned, you know, you come from a, a family of, of paddlers, you know, both your parents were, were Olympic medalists. Was this something that you sort of just grew up around and kind of you were always wanting to, to get into? Was it something your parents pushed you into? Sort of like what, what brought you about taking up the sport? Um, I think sort of to start with when um, I started paddling and obviously like 
my mum was always around the sport and she was always coaching. And um, so naturally I was always sort of in and around kayaking and I just sort of started paddling when I was quite young. And um, I think I'm the only person on the team that probably didn't come from surf lifesaving directly. Uh, myself and John, who's from South Africa. but um, And then I never felt pressured or pushed into it. I think it was just something to do while, you know, mum was coaching and everything. And I just sort of enjoyed paddling from a young age. And then as I got a bit older, I um, sort of left paddling a little bit and um, tried to race mountain bikes and then realised I was not so good at the hat and then came back to kayaking when I was about, you know, 14, 15 and um, just started making a couple of junior teams from there and um yeah here we are now <laughs> so slightly different um yeah slightly different to some of the other people on the team but yeah got at, got there in the end <laughs> with with at least for yourself i mean sort of you i believe wanted to sort of mainly be an iron woman but when you you know turned to kayaking at about 15 sort of obviously fell for it a little bit was was it something about it that kind of made you fall in love with it and and kind of maybe want to pursue it a little bit more outside of the surf lifesaving yeah um i always wanted to be an iron woman um you know i, I grew up in the surf um my family's really heavily involved in surf lifesaving and so it was kind of like an obvious choice for me and then when you turn 15 you can jump in a ski um so i jumped in the kayak to help your technique and i kind of explain it like if you're a cross-country runner you know you're running over rocks and through ditches and in mud and whatever and so it's hard to like practice your technique so you jump on um, a track or on a road to really work on that. So for ski paddlers, particularly 15 year old females who aren't very strong, um, you know, to paddle a 18 kilo, 18 foot ski in the surf and wind and chop and everything is quite hard. So you jump in a kayak on the flat water and um, it's a lot lighter. And I mean, it's a lot skinnier, so it's easier to fall in. But I just, once I could finally stay upright, which is a bit of a mission in itself. Um, most people spend like months and months upside down in a kayak. <laughs> but once I um, could stay upright, I just, I fell in love with the fact that kind of what you put in is what you get out. Because in surf lifesaving, a lot of it comes down to luck. Um, and I still love surf and I still race in surf. But um, just taking that luck out of it and, and really, you know, I guess putting your hard work on show um, was really satisfying. And I mean, what helps it as well is just the people you meet um, and the places you're able to go. And, I mean, kayaking is an Olympic sport, so very, very cool. Was there any aspirations then from both of you throughout that to to head to the Olympics in terms of when I grow up, I get to a certain point, this is a goal? I mean, Jordan, obviously, you're sort of around that a little bit more with, with your parents, but then, I mean, at least with yourself, once you kind of fell in love with that, was it like, okay, Olympics, this is a goal that I can strive towards? Um, I went to the Sydney Olympics actually as an eight-year-old just to watch a few sports and I fell in love with the Olympics then and I said way back then I wanted to be an Olympian but like the sports that I was doing um, then and you know they were mainly like school sports um, I wasn't much shop at um, I was the kind of the person growing up through school that would always be like the last pick or um, you know I'd kind of come up the back which was totally fine I love sport um, but yeah, I think for me, the whole idea of the Olympics kind of started to come into my head probably not until I was 16 or 17 where I started to realise that I, you know, I was actually okay at paddling and you started to meet people um, in the sport that had been to the Olympics and you can kind of start to see a bit of a pathway. But I think even then, 
it doesn't really feel real until you get to an Olympics because it's what so many kids kind of dream of. And even now, like saying that we're dual Olympians, like I remember um, a couple of girls coming back to my school who went to my school and, and became Olympians. And I just thought they were like the coolest people ever. And how can people like that from the Sunshine Coast go on to achieve that? And, and now we've done it. It kind of seems a little bit surreal because, yeah, it's what you grow up kind of thinking about. Yeah, I think for me, like, it's probably a little bit different because, like, my dad went to two Olympics and then my mum competed at four Olympics. So I think the path to an Olympic Games is maybe just, like, a little bit more clear because I could, you know, have those conversations so freely at home. But, um, yeah, I think it for me it really started, you know, becoming a bit more of a possibility when I was probably around the same, like, 16 or 17 years old and you can sort of, see how you're progressing and stuff like that. And then, you know, that then once you compete at like a junior world championships and then a sort of senior world championships, you go, oh, okay, the next step is competing in Olympic Games. And um, that in itself was just so exciting, especially coming sort of, I was quite young at my first Olympics. I was 21. So coming straight out of juniors and seniors and then making the Olympic team was, you know, just massive for me. Which I guess growing up in, in sort of that household and having that, you know, reliance and, and sort of having your parents help that. I mean, when, when you get to your first Olympics, how, how much was, was your mum able to kind of get in your mindset to sort of say, okay, this is what the experience is, is going to be like? Because I, I can imagine that every athlete maybe goes into an Olympics assuming it's going to be just like another competition, and of course it is, but then there's all the added elements and attention that an Olympic Games bring, particularly for, for your sport, I guess, where, you know, unfortunately Australians don't really maybe pay as much attention to canoe kayak outside of an Olympics as they probably should. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I don't really remember having any conversations like oh, with mum like preparing me for it. I think she was more than happy just to sort of let me go on my own course and sort of figure it out for myself. So it's sort of like a, you know, a fresh experience for me and it not sort of passing down too much stuff from her and which I really appreciate because um, it sort of leads a bit more to as, as a surprise, I guess you could say. So, I think we're lucky though, like in our sport, we're all kind of like a big family. And, um, you know, I remember right back to when I first made the senior team, you know, people would just have casual conversations at the dinner table about the Olympics and different stories. And so you, you're kind of a bit of a sponge and, um, all those different stories kind of add up and um, kind of help you once you do get to your first Olympics. I mean, it's still completely eyes wide open and, you know, you, nothing will 100% prepare for that. But, yeah, just like those shared stories were pretty beneficial for all of us. Well, you had Elise, I believe, sort of as one of your uh, helpers, role models, uh, the great Clint Robinson, who I believe was a member of your uh, Surf Lifesaving Club there, of course, gold medalist uh, in, in the sport for those listening who uh, maybe are outside of Australia don't know yeah. who Clint is and his achievements. I mean, how, how helpful was it to have someone like Clint sort of help you throughout your journey? Yeah, it's pretty special coming from the same surf club as Clint. I mean, he's a bit of a hero in our sport, obviously. I think he went to five Olympics and has won three medals. And um, and then surf lifesaving, he's the most successful surf lifesaver as well. So um, definitely someone to look up to. And I think um, what made it kind of, I guess, special is the fact that, you know, you saw when I was growing up, you saw Clint just getting around the surf club like anyone else. Um, and that's what kind of humanized the Olympics and made it feel like um, it was achievable. But um, 
well, I'm really lucky to come from Richdoor because we're from such a um, kind of a strong surf ski paddling pedigree, uh, which means there's a lot of kayakers there as well. So you kind of learn off so many different people and so many different people can tell stories. And, I mean, it's really cool at our club, um, at our surf club, when you walk up the stairs now, they've got an Olympian's wall and, um, you know, Clint's obviously features on there quite a fair bit, but um, there's other Olympians on there. There's Jordan's um, late dad. He was actually in the same surf club as well for a couple of seasons, and so he's on there as well, and, and then there's Jordan and I. So um, very special to be in a surf club that, um, you know, has such a strong pedigree in kayaking but also obviously surf ski. Is, when it comes to obviously the disciplines with, with the sport, obviously you've got flat water and then you've got slalom. I mean, you were talking a little bit before about sort of you know, the paddling in, in the surf and kind of everything along those lines. I mean, what, what's sort of the uptake when it comes to people switching to, to slalom over, over flat water? Or is it kind of a different beast that you don't really get those surf lifesavers going to slalom and they're sticking to the flat water? I think, you know, that's a funny question. So um, we will often refer to the slalom paddlers as the cool cousins because, you know, <laughs> going down rapids and doing spins and they're all sponsored by Red Bull and they're, they're just way cooler than us sprint kayakers. I mean, they, it's funny. They actually say the opposite. They say we're the cool ones. But <laughs> um, you'd think a lot of surf lifesavers and a lot of ski paddlers would transition to slalom paddling. But the issue is, and I think, I think this will change as Brisbane 2032 comes about, is the issue is, at the moment in Australia, the only slalom course uh, is in Penrith, and so it's nowhere near surf. Um, there's a couple of uh, natural uh, rivers and stuff they can do, for instance, in Tassie where you are. And, yep. um, but obviously all those natural rivers have to be flowing, and so yeah, the main course that you train at is in Penrith, so not near the surf. But um, Brisbane 2032, you know, they have to build a slalom whitewater centre um, and they've got that on the plans. And so that'll start to happen soon. Um, and I can't wait to see the crossover from surf life saving to slalom because, I mean, it's it's a really obvious one. Uh, and those of us that have tried slalom paddling, we all love it. Like Jordan's done it a fair bit. And, I mean, it's natural for us being ski paddlers on the slalom course. So, um, yeah, I can't wait to see kind of the juniors have the choice of either sprint or slalom in the future in Queensland. Well, I was going to ask. Yeah, I, I was going to ask that about that the slalom. If either of you had tried it, so Jordan, I mean, how how, how do you find it? How do you find sort of doing the slalom? Um, I can't say I did the slalom between the poles, but um, <laughs> I definitely enjoyed going down the rapids at the slalom course. Like, um, like I think if for me, if we had better access to a slalom course, I would definitely like to you know learn the skills and you know, get a better understanding about the sport. But um, unfortunately, it's just an access problem. Like, we've got a creek out the back of my mum's house and I've got a couple of white water boats, but you can only sort of do it, go down and paddle when it is flooding or the water's high. So, yeah, I think with the uptake and slalom in Australia as well, with Elisa's point, it's just more of an access issue. And as, like, another slalom course gets built, I reckon there would just be more and more people sort of, seeing how cool the sport is and I think the sport will grow from there. And I think like it's pretty cool. Like in our sport, um, in spring kayaking, we've had very good success at um I think we've won a medal at every Olympics since eighty eight. Um and so I think it's that. Anyway, so success breeds success and we've seen that time and time again with our sport. You know, if you have someone successful, um, the next generation has someone to look up to and it creates a good training environment and 
And you just see that flow on and you've seen that in sprint kayaking because of our success. But now we've got Jess Fox. I mean, she's an absolute legend, um, you know, gold and a bronze medal in, in Tokyo. And like, she's, she's literally the greatest of all time. Um, and I think so many kids will be able to look up to her. And now that there is on the plans to build a slalom course in Brisbane and, um, you know, we'll have two in Australia and hopefully that just brings the uptake a bit more because we are one sport after all, you know, we sit under the Paddle Australia banner. So it's cool to be able to see juniors and development kids feed through both um, disciplines. There was a a tweet that emerged during the Olympics. There was a a reporter down here who was sharing a a photo, and I believe they were going to air the story a couple of days afterwards, with um, Jess Fox's parents were here in in Tassie competing back in, like, the early 1990s, and they were being interviewed Mm. by Ariane Titmus's dad, Steve Titmus, who uh, I grew up as he was our main (laughs) newsreader here in Tasmania for many years. So it was kind of just this, you know, six degrees of separations that you've got two Tokyo gold medalist parents basically associating about 20 or 30 odd years prior. It was kind of one of those weird little uh, moments to kind of go <laughs> along that way. When it, when it comes to the training aspect, obviously, you know, with sort of the surf life-saving training and everything along those lines, is there much of a transition to what you have to use for that training aspect to what you do towards the, the sprinting aspect? I mean, do they kind of work together or is there certain sort of physical aspects when it comes to the training when you are working on, on the sprint paddling that you've got to do that you maybe wouldn't do so much with the surf life-saving? I think yes and no. Um, surf lifesaving, it's a lot more based around like endurance um, and a lot of skill, I guess, in the surf, particularly if you're racing quite big surf. Um, kayaking is definitely a sprint sport. And I think if you go back and watch a video, for instance, from Tokyo of, of any female race um, with myself in it or one of the other Aussie girls in it, we look like string beans in comparison to the girls we're racing. They're just muscles on muscles and um, it just shows, I mean, yeah, we have that background of endurance. So we've lost those years of, you know, building strength in the gym that those girls that we race against have had um, growing up. And, you know, there's no, I guess, right or wrong. It, it works for us and um, we're very technical. And so even if you're strong, you still need to have good technique, whereas we kind of work really heavily on our technique um, and use our endurance base as well. So there is a small crossover, obviously, you paddle left than right and then left than right and you have a similar shaped paddle um and i mean the boats are streamlined but the boats themselves are quite different but um yeah spring kayaking is very explosive um in comparison to ski paddling i would say what about you john yeah i think for me what i struggle with ski paddling is the like skills for the surf is um you know you just need that to spend so much time in the ski learning the sort of the movement of the ocean and stuff like that. So when I go to a ski race, it's like I'm quite good like paddling in flat water. But as soon as I get to a ski race, it's pretty common for me to get knocked out in the heat just because I don't have the don't have the skills for, you know, the surf ski. But um yeah, I think there's definitely crossovers and they definitely like ski paddling can definitely help your kayaking and kayaking can definitely help your ski paddling. But um yeah, at the end of the day, they are two different sports. Yeah, I think like a lot of people growing up, you know, try to do both equally. And I think obviously when you're growing up, that's great. Um, but I think, you know, you get to a point where you have to specialise. And I mean, since I've specialised in kayaking, my ski paddling career, 
has kind of, you know, gone a little bit downhill. Um, and that's purely due to skills and turf. Um, but, you know, you just have to kind of make that choice and you still, it, there's still a small crossover for sure. When it comes to all the the disciplines and deciding sort of what you want to focus on, I mean, is, is there much of a crossover when it comes to, I want to focus on say the K1 events, be a solo paddler, or then maybe I'm, I'm more of a K2 person or I'm a K4, or does it kind of, you start as a solo and then you kind of just bring yourself, kind of like the Avengers, you just team up when you need to kind of put everyone <laughs> together. I mean, sort of how, how does that generally work when it comes to the separate events? It's like the million-dollar question. I think <laughs> kayaking um, is a pretty unique sport. So rowers, for an example, if they're selected in, in eight, they'll do all of their training in the eight. They won't hop in a single. Whereas kayaking, because it's um, – such a balanced sport and it's so hard to get your feel for the water and um, it's really harsh on your body you know because you've got that balance aspect and you've got to be strong and you've got to have that endurance and that technique um, paddling 12 sessions a week in a k4 or a k2 is impossible you just could never do it it's just too taxing on your body so we do a lot of work in the k1s as well just to and then you do probably like ideally like two or three team boat sessions a week. So you do the bulk of your work in a K1 still. Mm. And I think a lot of us, um, you, when we race off for a team, for an example, a world champs team, uh, it's often selected on your K1 and then your K2 um, and your team boats. Uh, so you have to be able to perform in, in your K1 because that's like a baseline, uh, baseline measure, I guess. But definitely some people are better at team boats than what they are um, in singles. You know, Jordan's definitely a team boat paddler. And at the moment I'm doing both. Um, in Tokyo I raced, I was in the final for the K1 and the K2. But you kind of position yourself as kind of a front of the team boat paddler or a back of the team boat paddler. So, for instance, Jordan sits in the back of both the K2 and the K4 and it's a very different seat to sitting in the front. And if you position yourself as a backseat paddler, um, particularly in a K4, it's really heavy and there's a lot of work that you put in and it's a really high workload. Um, and so it's quite harsh on your body. And so just simply backing up and trying to race a K1 after that, um, you know, you're leaving yourself a little bit exposed. And, um, it hurts a lot. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, we definitely have people that prefer team boats over singles. We actually call, we nicknamed the single K-Lonely rather than K-1 because it is a bit lonely after you've been in a team boat. Wow. Yeah, yeah I definitely I definitely prefer racing team boats over uh, a single. I just like um, having in a team with, you know, a group of mates. It's just, for me, I just can't really... Um, get as excited for my K1 as I can for a team boat. <laughs> which which, when you're out there in, in the middle of a, of a race and obviously spurring each other on, I mean, is there tactics and things that you can sort of say to each other to really pick each other up? Because, I mean, I guess it's that motivation, isn't it, that, you know, the body's kind of tiring, you're training to that sort of stuff, but you've got to find pick up a, a bit of speed or kind of, you know, that second wind essentially in a race. I mean, are there go-to words, go-to phrases that you can say in the middle of a race to really, you know, kick your guys' asses <laughs> into gear? <laughs> It, you can't you talk can't in talk. the middle of a race. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about this, so for instance, you know, in the K4, say you're going um, 130 to 140 strokes a minute. Uh, and the way we breathe is breathe in one stroke and out the other. So if you're going 140 strokes a minute, you're breathing at 70 breaths a minute. Wow. 
uh, and they're they're just shallow breaths. But to try and fit in words in between that is like next to impossible. We we do make a couple of calls. Like in my boat, I make the calls, um, and it's just a simple yelp, and that we know what that means. So you know, it's either a transition down into the middle part of your race, or it's a yelp to to start our finish. But that's it. <laughs> just kind of going through there. Wow, it's uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear that because I mean I mean it makes complete complete sense that you wouldn't be able to kind of talk on that that's just that's just me the 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 armchair critic there going come on guys why aren't you talking you know paddle faster but at the end of the day you're just (laughs) doing everything in your aspects there that you can possibly do (laughs) yeah Yeah. when you're um yeah and when you come into a race like you you most people and most crews will race to a race plan so you train to execute that specific race plan so each person in the boat knows exactly where those yeps and those sort of lifts are going to come. So it's not a surprise to anyone. It's just more one person gives the call so everyone can do put a bit more power time. in on the same time just so it's not a disjointed boat. So, yeah, you, you sort of talk, but that's about it. You see, <laughs> one word the whole race. One word. <laughs> well, that's all you need, right? That's all. One word is all you need. Is, yeah. is there much... Um, sledging with the other competitors on the start line? Do you kind of give them a bit of a stare down? Like, oh, the Germans are next to us. Oh, we, we don't like them. We're going to stare them down. Oh, look, the French, we like them. So maybe we'll give them a bit of a, hey, you know, you, you're not going to beat us. Like, is there much going on there on the start line? No, I, I, no not really. I think at the, at the top of the course when we're paddling around, um, you, you, know, you do a few loops, I guess, before you're called into the start gates and it's pretty silent. There's a few, like, stare-offs going on, but... I don't really like personally kayaking is like we've said time and time again, like kayaking is such a technical sport and it's so easy to um, ruin your race, I guess. You know, for instance, in a team boat, we both sit in the back and if our timing is bad, you know, if we're too early or too late, it it ruins the race basically. Um, And, you know, there's different things um, with your power, the way you put in your power or, um, if you sit in the front of the boat, you can overrate it or you can underrate it. And so you, you really have to nail it yourself. Um, so, yeah, you don't really focus on everyone else and too like, much. I think as, especially maybe in juniors, like I remember when I was Definitely junior juniors. and I was like <laughs> turn up to a race and I was always quite small and I'd be like, oh, gee, these, these guys are so big, like, geez, and you'd sort of like kind of, that sort of maybe it was a bit more like mind games back then. But once you get to seniors, like no one's intimidated by anyone no. because once you're in that race, everyone knows that whoever's in that race is capable of winning on the day. And I think maybe that intimidation thing probably more when you're like when there's like in the junior categories and stuff because I think most people in the final will have a pretty mutual respect for everyone else. And um, you know, like we're friends with quite a lot of the the field as well. Like we know them all quite well, so. Yeah, I don't think there's any intimidation or stare off. See, there's always one person like randomly yelling like in the warm up <laughs> area, but like you sort of just ignore them. It's always that one. Are they usually American? Can we say that? Yeah. Or um, it's a- <laughs> well, there's not many Americans no. in kayaking actually, so no. no. It's one of the few that <laughs> they they don't seem to go with it. Because like, I can imagine, like at least for example for yourself, I mean, you're lining up there in the K1 500 against uh, the one and only Lisa Carrington. Can you can you not put her off a little bit? Like, oh come on. Stop winning, Lisa. Just come on, just give it. You know, New Zealand, you shouldn't win. This is not a thing. Like, come on. You know, too many gold for New Zealand, Lisa. Calm down. (laughs) 
I think you're shitting yourself so much that you just don't spend that energy on anyone else except yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Daring uses energy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you both make your Olympic debuts in, in Rio. Um, I mean, I'll get the obvious question yeah. out of the way that you get asked a million and one times. Uh, were you guys together back in Rio? Were you able to share that or was it sort of something that happened between Rio and, and Tokyo? No, no, we were together. Um, we were living together at the time and, um, yeah, it was pretty special to go to an Olympic Games, I mean, with, you know, your boyfriend at the time, um, you know, go to the closing ceremony together, experience all the highs and the lows together. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely very special. Which is, I mean, a unique aspect of any Olympics is to go to one, but, yeah, to have that kind of there with, with, with your partner must be an amazing experience. But, I mean, for both of you, when you, you both qualify, I mean, did, did one qualify ahead of the other? Were you qualifying around the same time? Was it a case of, like, Jordan, you qualified first, you went home, hey, guess what, I qualified the Olympics and Elise joins you a couple of days later? I mean, how did all that plan out? <laughs> I don't I don't. Re- I, I don't really remember. <laughs> I definitely remember. So in 2016, so the way like Olympic qualifications work are for us at a world champ, you've got to qualify your country and there's only a certain amount of spots available. So coming into our trials, the men had six spots available and the women only had three. So just like a simple numbers game, there was way more odds for Jordan to be on the team than for me. Um, and so his selection the way their selection kind of worked out was different to ours um you could get second and make the team for an example um whereas for the females like um Alyssa my k2 partner and I we focused on the k2 and the way that worked was um you had to win two out of three of the k2 races so you wanted to win the first two so you didn't have to race off so he qualified before I did um just based on numbers basically um and yeah, I remember when next come back to me now. Um, <laughs> of course it has. There yeah, you go. So in, 2016, in 2016, in the qualifications, we um had our we had to get top three in the K2000 to make the team, and we ended up coming third. So I think that race might have been on like the first or second day of nationals. So yeah, nice. we sort of got our qualification to the Olympic team over and done with quite early on in the week. And Elise had a K2 race off as well. <laughs> which, yeah, good time. Which <laughs> I, I believe for you, Elise, uh, you, you beat uh, some pretty prominent Olympians in Naomi Flood and Joe Bridden-Jones to, to get your spot there. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, a uh, couple of uh, people that you looked up to. So that must have been a pretty exciting moment to kind of beat them and kind of, cool, I get to go to the Olympics now. Yeah, I think, you know, Bully and I, we started paddling K2, I think it was at the start of 2015. And, we went to the under 23 world champ that year and um, we got a medal and it was pretty exciting. And then coming home um, into the Olympic year and knowing there was only three spots available, um, basically it was going to be a K2 and a K1. And like I said, best out of three. And so we kind of said, well, our best shot is in the K2. We've never won the K2 in Australia before, but we may as well give it a red hot crack. And so we kind of just really had that trust and belief in each other and, I mean, still to this day, I think we we ended up winning the first and the second trial, and we won the second trial by further uh, by more sorry than the, the first one, and it was it was such a shock to us. Like winning that first one um, when we came off the water, Mum said to me, she was like, "Oh, I didn't expect that." And, <laughs> yeah, great, thanks, Mum. <laughs> um, 
then she said that was a fluke. Yeah, wow. awesome. <laughs> so to, I think everyone was just really shocked that we were able to do that. But um, I think still to this day, you know, I think Floody and, and Joe were, were better paddlers than us. Um, you know, they were better than us in the K1. They were stronger than us. Um, they had all the experience in the world. But I think what made the difference for Bully and I was just the fact that we got on that start line and we just had full trust in each other. And that's a really big thing in the K2 because it is such a hard boat to paddle. Um, and if you're a little bit tense or a little bit too nervous or, or whatever, it, um, it can make the boat feel quite unstable or a little bit hard. And so, yeah, I, I just think on those two days we were just able to fully put together our best races and I mean yeah massive turning point in both of our careers so it's pretty exciting but I mean it just shows and it's taught us a lot in this last cycle that you know teamwork really can make a lot of difference at the top end of, of sport. Jordan, yourself, you also sort of in the lead-up to Rio had a, a big win uh, beating Ken Wallace and Lachlan Tame, World Championship Silver Medalist, and obviously, you know, prominent names in the sport in Australia partnering with uh, Riley Fitzsimmons. I mean, what was that sort of like in, in that moment to kind of, you know, upseed uh, those two, who I believe went on to win bronze, if I'm not mistaken, in Rio as well? Oh, we never beat them. Didn't? Maybe. <laughs> No, we, we, we definitely never beat them. At, um, His face right now is, wow, did we beat them? I was like, I don't know the things, but no, no I, can't, I can definitely um, safely say that um, we never beat uh, Kenny and Lockie in any... Well, I'm, I'm races, blaming the AOC for bad research on their we- on their website here. This is this is all off. This isn't even Wikipedia. This is the AOC. I I'll can't even, Lockie you know. Yeah. Jeez. We'll need to screenshot that, I think. Yeah. I think- no, but coming into Rio... Um, like in 2015, Riley and I um, raced the under 23 worlds where we came work the win. And um, I think from that moment on, we sort of started seeing the, you know, the Olympics as a bit more of a possibility. And we could even potentially, if we have a really good race, push for that K2 spot, which, um, you know, didn't end up happening as we came first, third at um, nationals behind Kenny and Lockie and Murray and Jake. But, um, yeah, I think racing the K2000 set us up for the K4 as well, which we got fourth in in 2015 at the World Champs. And then we followed that up the following year at the Olympics and we got fourth again. So, yeah. Consistent. Consistently fourth. Hey, we're a co-Canadian-Australian podcast and we often celebrate fourth for Canada in the Olympics, in the Summer Olympics particularly, is almost as good as a medal. So, um, hey, we, we, can, we, yeah. <laughs> we, we can take that on board. In terms of that debut Olympic experience, because you, I guess, both are sort of in that unique position where, you know, Tokyo and Rio, obviously very different Olympics in terms of experiences and, and how the world is yeah. uh, back then to, yeah. to where it is now. So kind of reflecting now that you're both dual Olympians and having experienced the uniqueness of Tokyo, are you kind of both glad that you were able to make your debut at a Games like Rio where I guess, quote, it was normal compared to what you would have experienced at Tokyo? Yeah, I I think, yeah, I think that took away a lot of anxiety and a lot of kind of extra stress, I guess, around Tokyo, you know, having been to Rio and and seeing a closing ceremony, for example, with a full crowd or um, having your parents and your family and friends um, in the crowd and um, things like that. I think, yeah, we're very thankful that that was our first one and Tokyo was our second, but I think, you know, as we sit here in quarantine and we've had a, a hell of a lot of time to reflect on Tokyo, I think... Tokyo wasn't by any means bad. And I think what I've learned from it is different isn't always bad 
different can be good. And, you know, obviously there was things that we missed out on, like not having a crowd uh, or not having a crowd at the closing ceremony or, um, for instance, not going out to parties outside of the village, uh, which was always a bit of fun in Rio. But um, what we lost there, we made up for because, I mean, the the spirit within the Australian team particularly and, and our building in Tokyo, um, where everyone stayed, was so electric. Like, the way other athletes are celebrating, you know, our sport and vice versa and really getting around each other and the way our team itself got around each other. And I, I just think that that is probably the first time it's happened to that extent, maybe at an Olympics. And it was, it was really cool. Like very, very special. And the, and the organizers were great. And the volunteers were like the most excited people you've ever seen in your life. Um, so yeah, it was really I think looking back on Rio compared to Tokyo, I think for me, I'll remember Tokyo a bit more fondly. I'm not sure why. Just like Elise said, it's the AOC just did a great job setting up our building and, you know, it's the Australian way. Everyone's so friendly and we really, it was just a really good experience for, you know, especially considering the, you know, the state the world's in at the moment to even have an Olympics as well. And um, yeah, I think that makes it even more memorable that we did, that it did go ahead. And um, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one more thing about the difference, you know, in Rio, um, and it was to do with time zones maybe as well, but like we raced at 2 a.m. Australian time, so no mm. one really watched. Um, but also in Rio, people at home were doing other things and, um, you know, the Olympics wasn't really on the top of their to-do list at all, whereas, you know, this time around in Tokyo, everyone was stuck at home and everyone was watching the TV and it's a very similar time zone. And just to hear stories of um, people talking about watching us and how it brought them joy in their lounge rooms and and that's what they were looking forward to when they woke up. It was pretty special because we have been through a bit of a shit 18 months. And so to put smiles on people's faces doing something that we love doing is is very cool. Fantastic. And it's good to hear sort of those stories because, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, no matter, you know, if it's your first, your fifth, or, you know, in case of what Andrew Hoy is your eighth Olympics, I mean, you know, Tokyo is (laughs) always going to – have that unique distinction of being such a unique Olympics that you will always be able to to share that you were a part of that. So it's kind of this unique uh, yeah. moment in history where you'll be able to tell the grandkids that not only was I an Olympian, I was an Olympian at Tokyo, the weirdest Olympics that were ever were an Olympics. <laughs> yeah, and I think, like, going into the Games, you know, there was all these stories about different athletes pulling out for various reasons. And, um, you know, the reason of pulling out because there was no crowds Mm. For us leading into it, it was like, oh, like, yeah, it will suck that there's no crowds because it is cool to race in front of crowds and it does give you a bit of that extra lift. But in hindsight, not having the crowds, like, did not affect you one single bit. <laughs> like, when you're out on the water, you can't hear anything anyway. Mm. Um, and you're bubbled off. Like, in Rio, you're bubbled off from the crowds anyway with, you know, transporting to and from. And then, obviously, the public isn't allowed into the back of house and vice versa. And so... Yeah, it really did not make one single difference, but it, what it what it did do is highlighted the volunteers. And I tell you what, there were so many volunteers. The there volunteers was, are unreal. There was a media report before we went over that said, like, they um, dropped 10,000 volunteers and everyone was like, oh, my gosh, there's going to be none over there. There were so many volunteers. It wasn't <laughs> funny. It was, it was beautiful. Like, they were, they were brilliant. 
Yeah, I we talked a lot during our coverage of just always loving seeing the volunteers and just the smiles on their faces. And it's, it's often what makes any sort of games. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to work during the, the Commonwealth Games and had to deal with a lot of the volunteers. And I mean, it was just incredible hearing their stories too, just kind of why they were volunteering. And we all remember during Sydney how I think the, the volunteers remember got their own parade, didn't they? It was sort of, you know, that well received yeah. basically. So, I mean, it kind of, it makes the games I can imagine to interact with these people who are just wanting to experience an Olympic Games in any way they possibly can. Yeah, it's funny actually. Um, so when you go to an Olympics, you and I, I'm assuming it was the same at the Com Games. You, um, the there's this thing where people exchange pins. Yes. And so for instance, yes. on your accreditation, you have pins, and as Aussie athletes, we get given Australian pins. So there's you know kangaroos, and there's like an Australian flag and whatever. And most people would try and find a German athlete and swap a German for an Australian and you fill your lanyard with other countries. But mm-hmm. I kept, and I've, I have like maybe five countries because of this, because the volunteers kept coming up to me and saying, oh, can I swap a pin? And I couldn't say no because they were so, so good. <laughs> so I kept giving them Aussie pins and all I have are Tokyo 2020 pins. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> they got to a point where I was like, I gotta stop doing this. Yeah. I'm running out. <laughs> and I have and I have Fifteen of the same pins now. <laughs> wow! Which I can imagine, like again, because you—it's probably not as easy to exchange pins in the village as it would have been in Rio because of restrictions, right? So it made it made it a little bit more difficult. Um, not so no, much. Not really? No, I mean people were very respectful, and it was you know a very swift and quick thing. But um, no, not not really. I mean it's always a bit of an awkward exchange, and it happens in about three and a half seconds. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, we were strictly told as employee, we were told like, you know, you, you don't ask, don't, you know, whatever. So, you know, kind of, you follow the rules for a yeah. first couple of days and then all of a sudden you realise, oh, fuck this. And then like yeah. kind of I had the lanyard too with just yeah. filled with them and it was like, yeah. And by the end of it, you're exchanging like your, your clothes with team wear and, you know, you, I, I got like <laughs> Indian boxing gloves, I think. Like, I got so much oh, stuff. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We, don't, we didn't actually exchange any uniform, I think. Uniform for, uh, I guess, Jordan and I, like, it's pretty special to have an Australian Olympic uniform. And, yeah, it's cool to swap a German top or a you know, American top. But, I mean, the Aussie Olympic logo is the one that's actually special to us. So I always tried to hold on to that and, yeah, the pins of the things, but which I failed at miserably this year, but that's okay. <laughs> we, always, we always get really good stuff as well. So I sort of, <laughs> sort of like, oh, this is actually, like, yeah, really good, a really good product. So we nice. sort of hang on to it a bit more. But... I did a lot of uniform swapping when I was a junior and stuff for other countries' uniforms. So I think I might have gotten this uniform swapping out of my system when I was quite young and now I'm more than happy just to hang on to hang on to the Australian uniform. Just kind of keep that uh, special and preserved and all that sort of stuff for, for all the yeah. memories that will eventually come with it. Uh, I mean, uh, Jordan, you mentioned, of course, uh, in Rio, fourth in the in the K4. You're also 11th in, in the K2 for yourself, Elise, uh, eighth in, in the K2. I mean, did you leave Rio, I guess, satisfied? Were you kind of expecting more? Kind of was it the goal to, you know, make a final? I mean, kind of how did you both leave Rio feeling? Um. Yeah, I think we were pretty happy like coming out of the world cups and stuff um you know we'd been sort of on the podium but each world cup there was one crew missing so we knew we'd be really close to the podium and um you know if not challenging for it so yeah leaving Rio we were yeah definitely quite hungry for more and um yeah I think 
for us, um, you know, we went in to Rio's, the underdogs, I guess, that maybe shouldn't have made their first Olympics that early. And um, we made the final and we were stoked with that. That was our that was our goal. We probably went in ranked, I don't know, 16th or something. And so the final has eight people in it. So we we're very, very happy with that. But um, in the final, and this is just a classic case of um, kayaking in outdoor sport, is um, there was like a massive storm the night before and the course was like littered with like, trees and debris and stuff and about five meters into our race we caught a massive like banana leaf on our nose which slows you down um and so we finished the final last and i guess we'll never know how we were meant to go then um which is pretty hard because you know if we'd finish eighth with the best race of our career we'd be stoked but yeah just to never know was hard but in the same breath still very 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 happy to make that final um our celebration after the semi-final was like we'd won a gold medal <laughs> because that was just such a big uh, achievement for us so yeah definitely less rio content but 100 percent knowing we can do better and, and i think also left rio knowing that we belong in that final and we belong in the best paddlers in the world whereas previous to that you'd look at the other girls like they were in a different league well, a year later, it got even better for you both in the Czech Republic. You both walked away from the world chance with a, a gold medal around your neck uh, for yourself, Elise, in the K1-1000 and Jordan for yourself in the K4-1000. I mean, what's that experience like to kind of leave both of the gold medal? And who got their gold first and kind of was a pressure on then the other <laughs> to kind of, you know, back that up in the next event to win to win a gold as well? Yeah, well, Jordan, so Jordan was in the K4. Uh, they were two races before us. Oh, wow. They're both 1,000 metres, so a kilometre up from the finish line. And you normally hop on to your race about 25 minutes beforehand to paddle all the way up and do warm-up and stuff. So the boys went, and I was still at the top end paddling around and trying to focus on myself. And the I remember the big screens, which you can sometimes see, they were tilted like towards the finish line, so I couldn't see anything. There was big crowds, so you couldn't understand the the microphone or whatever. Um, so I had no idea how they went and, you know, probably eight minutes later, I came down the course and came across first. And one of the first things I did was look over to the pontoon and the boys had their podium tracksuit on, which meant they'd done okay, you know, <laughs> top three, happy days. <laughs> so that was pretty special. I mean, I, Jordan can probably talk for watching the race or his race, so that was my experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, when... Oh, we finished our race. It was like, obviously, we were so excited to come away with the win and everything. And then I was like, two seconds later, I was like instantly nervous for Elise. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, when Elise crossed the line, I was just so excited. And um, it was so special for both of us to win our, you know, first senior world championship medals within like 10 minutes of each other. So that was huge. Fantastic. I can imagine the party must have been pretty epic that night then. I think it was quite short because we were all so tired and you know you at the end of a big race week and so you peak a bit early and then you go home <laughs> yeah wow that's crazy so with that sort of in in the back of the mind and then kind of all the other uh, events and successes you had in in the lead up to Tokyo was the delay something that worked to your benefit or was it maybe worked against your benefit I mean kind of how were you feeling in the lead up to just before the game games were cancelled and then having to add an, another year to the schedule? Oh, that's, it's a hard question to answer. I think we're both young enough that um, 
adding an extra year wasn't an issue. And like, you know, we weren't counting down the days to retirement, uh, for an example. So, you know, I feel for the athletes that were ready to retire. And I mean, maybe we are, maybe we are now, aren't now, but, um, you know, those athletes that were carrying injuries or, um, you know, really kind of looking forward to that next um, kind of milestone, I guess. I feel for them. But for us, the extra year, I, I, I can honestly say I don't reckon it helped nor hindered. I reckon what we produced this year probably would have been the same as last year. I, 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 it's so hard to tell. You feel every year you feel like you're going really well. Yeah. So... I feel like I improved this year, but was it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's super hard to... Like, hindsight's a great thing, but I don't think it, you know, hindered or, like Elise said, hindered or, um, you know, made us better. But um, I think the way we approached it was really good. And um, especially being in Australia, we're in such a good position compared to the rest of the world. And, um, you know, we could pretty much train unhindered for a good portion of the year, so... I think in compared to other countries, we definitely were in a better position. I think though, like, you know, you look at what we had and what they didn't have and vice versa. Like, you know, we obviously had uninterrupted training, which is a huge benefit, but we had no international racing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, whereas like the Euros were our main competitors. They had quite interrupted training, but they had international racing. And so or, or what's more important than the other? I don't know. I mean, Jordan and I in both of our um, K2 heats, uh, which was our first race internationally since 2019, um, we had shocking heats, absolute Barry Crockers. But, you know, you have to kind of get that out of your system um, when you first come back into international racing and then um, you come good and we came good. Um, And we knew we would because it's just like a training effect. It's just kind of getting those nerves out of the way and then you move into your you know what you know you're good at and um through the rounds and that's probably exactly how we were going to race whether we had five international races under our belt or not so going then into tokyo with with that part out of the mind i mean were, were you both sort of looking to better what you achieved in rio was given the world championship success you had in between rio and tokyo was there genuine hope and desire to come away with the medal um I think, like for me, for example, that world championship win, that was a, in a non-Olympic um, distance. And so that was over a 1,000 metres. Our Olympic distance is 500. And um, so, you know, halving that distance, I've always raced 500s. But for me, knowing that I can perform against the best in the world has, has been a massive benefit. Um, in our K2, that was our priority event. And uh everything we were producing at home was saying that we were going to be on the podium and we're going to be close to it. And so once we made that final in the final, we, we, it was kind of anyone's race, really. It was, it was just, it was the hottest field ever. So I think, yeah, at, at, at home, sorry, we, we definitely wanted to better our Rio performance and we knew we could, and we knew we wanted to be on that podium, but um, yeah, you just, you just don't know. And then in terms of my K1, um, I wanted to be in that final. Uh, no one's been in the final. Like an Aussie female hasn't been in the final since Sydney 2000. And so just making that final is a big deal. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about how the races played out a bit later on. But um, just to make that final, that was huge for me. Just, Jordan, before yeah, I, I get think- your viewpoint on that, I just want to just quickly, Elise, when you're mentioning about the, the race you win at the World Championship, not an Olympic event. Is there a reason why? Is it just yeah. that the, the program's too stacked in the Olympics? I mean, why can't they include the, the K1000 at the Olympics? 
I'm going to say politics. Um, <laughs> when you get to an Olympics, the um, you can only have a certain amount of medal events and a certain amount of athlete quota spots and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's again, it's a numbers game. Um, and so the female Olympic uh, races are a K1 200 and then a K1, K2, K4 500. So no thousand, but the men have a K1 thousand. So um, all those three uh, distances, K1, K, sorry, uh, 200, 500,000, um, they're all world championship events and obviously pretty hotly contested at Worlds, but yeah, the Olympic program kind of gets skimped down a little bit. But yeah, is that frustrating? World Cup is, world. is that frustrating to be yeah. a world champion in, in an event and you can't be an Olympic champion due to something like politics? I think it is frustrating, but I mean, we we know that. Um, I think the most frustrating bit is for us is there's no funding on it. So even if you become a world champion in that event, I didn't see a single dollar uh, from that. Apart from you know maybe I've picked up my own sponsors or whatever it is from that. But yeah, it's not recognised. Um, to be funded, which, I mean, it is what it is. Um, there has to be, obviously, money has to be positioned towards Olympic success, and so that needs to be an Olympic event. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're all, we've grown up knowing this. So, yeah, it is what it is. Now, now Jordan, I've got to ask. Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to ask you the question first because I don't trust the AOC's website now for this being correct <laughs> based on their previous information. Now, I believe your qualification for the K2 you ended up beating Tom and John eventual gold medalists. Now, is that true that you beat them in the qualification race? Um, yeah, we did. Okay, good. All right, thank you. AOC got something right there. Um, so <laughs> how were how you feeling then going into your second uh, Olympics and, and confident of sort of uh, bettering your results from Rio? Yeah, I think especially in the K2, like Riley and I have been quite consistent since, you know, 2018. 20- 18 onwards in the K2 like we've been fourth or fifth every year and um you know even winning the under 23 world championships and coming third in under 23 world champs um I think we'd shown would be sort of top five in the world and sort of coming into the Olympics um we we're feeling really good all the times we we're hitting in training and stuff we we're like yep we're in, on the money we're on the money and then um you know come race day in the semi-final there's you know, there's good days in sport and there's some bad days and we just had a bad race and um, I can't really put it down to anything yet, but, you know, it was one of those things that just didn't quite go to plan. Is it turned around slightly to get over that disappointment that your teammates go on to win a gold medal though? Because I can imagine that that is a great feeling to celebrate that. Obviously, you'd like to have the gold around your neck, but if you're not going to get the gold, the next best thing is have your teammates walk away with a gold medal. Yeah, like I think, them winning gold was, you know, we're obviously really excited for them and stoked that they came away after the win. But, um, you know, we're obviously still disappointed for ourselves. But, you know, they did an awesome race. And in all honesty, it was probably one of the best K2000 races I've ever seen. And it was super close, sort of, you know, through the whole field. So for them to come away after the win, like, I'm so stoked for them. And, um, yeah, for us, we, um, yeah, just didn't perform on the day we had to, unfortunately. In the in the K4, um, fourth and rear, sixth then in, in Tokyo, so was that a similar thing that kind of it just uh, didn't come together on, on the day, that the field had sort of improved over the five years? Kind of what, what did all that come down to? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think we... I can, I can quickly jump in here. 
So the um, Cape Four has changed since, again, politics, whatever, has changed from the 1,000 to the 500 for the men um, since Rio. So the boys were fourth in the Cape Four 1,000 in Rio and, and uh, it was a Cape Four 500 in Tokyo. So the event changes massively. You halve your distance, so you change the type of athlete that's in there. But I'll, I'll let Jordan continue with his answer <laughs> now. No, I like, the, I like these technicalities. That. I like it. Good. My, 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 my research department is failing me today, so I'll just point that out. So, <laughs> I should have probably clarified that. So, yeah, <laughs> the, when, when we won the K4000 in 2017 as well, it was also not an Olympic event anymore. But it was a year after the Olympics. Wow. So it's still a strong field, but... <laughs> but um. Yeah, like we, in training and stuff, we'd, you know, we hadn't raced with that crew internationally and um, we weren't quite sure where we would stack up, but we were really hoping for a, you know, podium, if not top five. So to sort of just fall that little bit short was a little bit disappointing. But um, yeah, I still think we had a good race and we just put it all out there and raced to the best of our abilities. So we can't really be disappointed with that. Which, which I guess at the end of the day, as you're saying, you know, as long as you walk away aware that there was nothing left in the tank, you, you provided, you know, the best that you could out there. I mean, yeah, there might be the, the disappointment of, of not getting a medal or sort of finishing where you would like to, but I guess on reflection and clearly it's still very fresh in the minds, only, you know, barely a couple of weeks old, but is it something that can spur you on as well, kind of leading up to other events that I did the best I could and this is where I can improve to go that little bit further for the, the next Olympics? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure about the next Olympics yet. Um, <laughs> like I've, you know, I've been in the sport for you know a good twelve years now, and no, since you were in the womb, you've been in the sport. Okay, I've, <laughs> I've been around the sport for 27 years. Yes. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think I really want to, you know, do a few other things at the moment, and um, whether I keep paddling or not, I think, you know. Those, um, you know, you always remember those races and you just really want to prove like what you can do to the best of your abilities, no matter what. And that's sort of my main motivation anyway. So yeah, whatever happens in the future, I'll, um, yeah, I'll always race the same and just go out there and try my best. I always say racing is basically just trying really hard. So if you try really hard and, you know, you get six like you might be disappointed because you get the result you want but at the end of the day that might be the best you can do on that day so yeah we'll see what happens though in the future never, never ask a returning olympian fresh from the olympics if they're going to go on i mean i know it's only three years not four years this time around but it's like when when daniel craig famously <laughs> said he would rather slit his wrist and play james bond again it's because he just finished filming a bond film so of course he's going to say that isn't he <laughs> That's all right. We're used to answering that question. We've we've been asked it a hell of a lot. <laughs> all right, good. I'll just I'll, I'll just tick that off the list. Ask the obvious question. Beautiful. All right, uh, done that one there. Uh, I mean, Elise, uh, in the in the K two, so finishing fifth on yeah. that one now. Six tenths of a second doesn't sound like much, but I can imagine I'm a Formula One fan and six tenths is, is a lifetime in, in that sport. I mean, is it a similar case that when you look at the timing on how far you are off of, say, a, a bronze or a silver medal, that that isn't as close as it seems? Or, I mean, kind of how did you feel uh, reflecting on that, the closest that you were six tenths away from an Olympic medal? It's bloody close. We also are F1 fans. It's not like F1. <laughs> like six tenths of a second, half a second is, with fuck all, basically. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, for us, that race, that final, um, 
it was it was the best race we could put together and it was so gut-wrenching to end up fifth and so bloody close to the medals like it was so close from across the line because you kind of cross the line and then you make sure you can breathe and then you look across we didn't know what we got you know so that's how close it was but I think we ended up um with a PB, we ended up with an Australian record. The time we set was um, faster than the previous Olympic best, and we got fifth. Um, we're now the sixth fastest time ever wow. recorded. Um, so, like, if you told me a month ago that I was going to do a 137 in the K2 and get fifth, I would have absolutely laughed in your face and been like, no way. <laughs> 137 will easily get you on the podium. But the... Girls that we raced this year, uh, and I mean, Anna, my coach, you know, she's a bit of a K2 legend um, of the past and she's seen many generations of K2 athletes go through and female athletes go through. And I mean, she said, this is the hottest field we've ever seen. Um, this Olympics was the first Olympics. Again, politics coming to it. This Olympics was the first Olympics that um, uh, each country could put in two boats per race. So in the K1 and the K2, not in the K4. So um, automatically that makes the K1 and the K2 events stacked. Uh, you know, like the boys, for instance, um, you know, the other boys went on to win gold. Our boys um, were also in, in in the mix. But you know, you wouldn't see that at another Olympics. You wouldn't see where the second crew is. So for us, you know, there's two Hungarian crews in front of us. So at any other Olympics, we would have got fourth, um, but not this time around. But, yeah, just to be up with those girls and, and in such a historic race, it was the fastest race, whole race ever recorded was just, yeah, pretty cool, pretty gut-wrenching, but I, I mean, we don't come away with silverware, but we come away with a few records, which is pretty cool. And, and on that too, as you mentioned, I mean, the first uh, Australian to make a, a final of the, of the K1 since Sydney, uh, I mean, do you walk away with that achievement on your shoulders as, you know, coming away satisfied, another Olympic final under your belt? Or did you feel that, again, that was another race where maybe you were aiming for a medal and didn't quite achieve what you were setting out for? Um, I think both of them, it's funny actually, we, where we talk about Sydney and the K2, it was the best um, result since 96, which is actually since Anna, our coach, and her K2 partner, Katrin, and Katrin was then the one to make the final in Sydney. So I guess it's very similar to the partnership Bully and I have, and it's kind of cool to take their mantle a little bit. Um, I mean, they got a bronze in Atlanta, but um, we paddle faster than, than them, so we'll take that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the K1, I, I didn't expect to be on the podium. I would have loved to, obviously. Everyone loves to you know, stand on the podium, but um, it's really hard to focus on more than one boat and – you know, we spoke about Lisa Carrington, the New Zealander earlier, and um, she did four events. And that's huge for our sport because to juggle so many different types of boats is really difficult. So we prioritised the K2 um, and that was exactly where we wanted to be. And um, the K1 for me, I mean, I haven't lost the K1 in Australia this Olympic cycle and I've been paddling really well. And um, the K1 for me, just to make that final was a massive achievement. Um, I think the day didn't pan out the way I expected because like the semi-final we had first up and that was the semi-final is always the hardest race you'll do because, you know, in our, in our progression system, only two make, made it through and bully, you know, my K2 partner was in the same semi. And then we had Lisa Carrington as well. And we had, you know, a whole host of other girls in there. So, um, 
you you assume Lisa's going to be one of the two and then you've got to beat your best friend and you've got to beat one of your good mates who's in the lane next to you or, or whatever. So to make the final was a massive relief. I think there was a lot of pressure put on me to make that final, both from myself, obviously, but also externally, just to be in that final and kind of achieve that expectation. I just, I was pretty emotional, but then the race after to see the boys, Jordan and Riley, and it was directly after, like, not make the final. It was also really, you know, obviously emotional for me to watch as, as Jordan's wife and one of Riley's good mates. And so I went from, like, pretty high to I obviously wanted to be there for them, but then I had to kind of cut off and, and focus on myself and almost, you know, push aside the boys until later that afternoon. And um, I didn't really recover very well, like, the semi was the hardest race I've ever had and just I just couldn't I don't know what happened in that hour and a half but um I hopped on the start line and I actually false started in the, in the final which I've never done before so just there was just a lot of emotions gone through my body that I just haven't dealt with before and then um I ended up I, the race I put together wasn't great uh it wasn't my worst but it wasn't my best it just wasn't good enough for an Olympic final and um that's just the way the cookie crumbles I think you know to put together your best race day in, day out, which in our K2, for an example, the days leading into that, we did a PB every race. And then you go into the K1 and, and the same for my heat, my semi, I had two of the best races I've ever had. So to back up again, I mean, obviously you expect that and you want that, but it just didn't happen. And that's the Olympic game. Yeah. And not everyone can win. And I think growing up, I wish people told me about the stories like this rather than just the gold medal winning performances because I think when you talk to athletes that have almost made it or you know something hasn't quite paid off for them or they're like the inspiring stories and the the really you know the ones that you want your kids to hear because it is about resilience and I can think of so many people um, before me that you know I just I kind of aspire to be and they're not they're not so much always the gold medalists. For sure, for sure. It's it's also interesting to note that you are on off the podium, so therefore, technically, we should be celebrating the people. Who cares about those people who win medal- medals at the Olympics? God, yeah, we're, yeah. we're off the podium, <laughs> all right? We're here to celebrate all the people who don't win medals, clearly. Like we're, that's... The, we're, the de- we're the demographic. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're fitting in with our audience. We should always probably, um, I guess... <laughs> Before the podcast, they're actually joking about that. We're like, oh, dude, they're just getting all the athletes who just, just missed out <laughs> on the podium. That's <laughs> so why we have half Canadian, right? Because, you know, and then it works for us during the Winter Olympics because it's like Australia's like Canada in the Winter Olympics. We just miss out on the podium. So it kind of, it's a good, it's a good balance there, really, to kind of, uh, you know, keep, keep all up there. You guys, I both believe, went to the, the closing ceremony. You touched on that before, I think, yep. at least with that. I mean, what was that experience like to kind of go in there? Because, I mean, obviously, both the ceremonies looked very sort of odd compared to what we're used to. But, I mean, generally the closing ceremony is a lot more of a, a party atmosphere. Was it just up to the athletes to kind of create the, the party going on there? Because it, it just seemed like a very <laughs> odd experience, that closing ceremony. Um, yeah, it was definitely different to Rio, whereas Rio was quite literally just like a massive party. It was loud. It was just like a massive, like, Brazilian party basically like, like in Rio it was such a party that once they'd done all of the official stuff they had all the floats and all the costumes and nice. stuff they let all the athletes in and we were climbing on top of the floats and they were giving their <laughs> costumes to us and then 
going back into the village, you have to clear security. It's kind of like airport security. And there was athletes like dressed as trees <laughs> going through the conveyor belt. Like that's how different it was. But uh, Jordan can continue. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I think given the circumstances, the um, closing ceremony in Tokyo was sort of what you'd expect. But, um, yeah, it definitely didn't have the same feel to it as the Rio closing ceremony. But, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was good. It was good. <laughs> I think what's, what was different about Tokyo, I mean, yeah, obviously there wasn't the crowd. There wasn't, I mean, Rio is obviously a bit more of a party city than Tokyo maybe, you know, when you're thinking about exactly what Brazilians do and stuff versus the Japanese. But um, what made Tokyo different and what made, I guess, that closing ceremony special is that you um, actually listened to the speeches and you actually took in things because, you know, it, it's a pretty big milestone, I guess, to make it all the way to Tokyo and to, um, you know, be there in, like, such a crazy world. And, um, for instance, when they hand over the flag from Tokyo or from Japan to France and then they took, they went live to France and it was, it was really eerie because we were in this ginormous stadium with just athletes and, I guess, a few delegates and it's quiet. And then they've shot to the screen and you guys would have seen it on your TV and they were in Paris and there were some athletes that had already flown from Tokyo to Paris there with their medals, um, some French athletes. And there was so much crowd and there were just like absolute party scenes. And it was just like, you couldn't get two more opposite um, views, I guess. But yeah, yeah. It, was, it was pretty special to be in that stadium just because you knew what it meant. Um, yeah. And I guess that was Tokyo in itself. Like in Rio, when you finished racing, you went looking for parties and you went looking for good times. Whereas in Tokyo, when you finished racing, you went looking for um, stories and, and experiences. You know, we finished racing and straight away, the first thing we wanted to do, they had two dining halls. One dining hall was normal, just anything, basically whatever you want, they'll have. Then they had another dining hall called casual dining and it was um, like traditional Japanese food. And you didn't really want to dabble in that before you raced. But after you race, you really wanted to go to that because you wanted to experience that. Um, so, yeah, closing can, ceremony was different, but, yeah. Can, you, can you confirm one thing to me, though? I heard that they didn't have McDonald's in the uh, village this time around. Is that true? That is true, that is and true. I still don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> disappointing. I thought that would be the, the best bit about it, free McDonald's after you finish competing, right? Like, why wouldn't you go crazy? Well, not in... In Rio, we went to get McDonald's afterwards and the lineup was two and a half hours long. Holy so crap. No, not worth it. Not worth it. Yeah, free McDonald's for two and a half hours. Yeah. Go, you can go past that one. That's crazy. And I guess also, too, because I'm guessing you didn't arrive in, in Tokyo till after the, clo- uh, the opening ceremony, right? Because it was sort of staggered where you could arrive. And given yeah. you weren't competing until the second week, I'm assuming that you weren't able to get there until after the opening ceremony, correct? So we, um, on the opening ceremony day, we flew from Brisbane to Sydney and we stayed in the airport hotel in Sydney. So we watched the um, opening ceremony from a hotel room in Sydney wow. individually. That was weird. And then we hopped on a flight the next morning to Tokyo um, and we went, we didn't go to the village straight away because um, we can't really get on the course when the rowers are there um, because they race all day and we use the same course. So. Uh, we went we did a training camp uh, at the 1964 Tokyo Olympic course, which is about 40 minutes away. Uh, so we stayed there for a week and then went into the village a couple of days before we raced. So, 
yeah, our opening ceremony experience is super weird because <laughs> we were also obviously wanting to recover and Australia has that extra hour on, on top. So we were in bed and we just were so tired and but just waited for Australia to walk out and then we turned the TV off. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even watch the program. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was so interesting watching so many athletes on social media, particularly, say, for the closing ceremony, sort of going, hey, just watching the closing ceremony from home or in quarantine. And it's like, this is odd. Yeah. Shouldn't you be there? Like, it's odd. kind of, you know. I know. So, so strange. Right. So... Obviously, I've touched on the, the Paris question. I won't ask you that again um, because obviously you're still <laughs> sort of uh, recovering. But, but one thing you guys sort of do outside of, I guess, competing competing out on the international stage is you, you run a bit of a program uh, to, to help, I guess, aspiring paddlers out there. Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of how this came about and what exactly you are trying to achieve with this? Yeah, I think when we went into lockdown last year and um, we got to um, – spend a bit more time at home and, and paddle on our own waterways, which we don't normally paddle on. We saw how many paddlers are out there and we kept getting kind of stopped and um, people asking questions and stuff. So, you know, everyone always says to us, oh, why don't you become a coach? But, I mean, first and foremost, we can't actually coach people when we're training at the exact same times. Um, but secondly, like I think knowing the reach we have internationally within um, like the paddling community is pretty cool. So we put together a, a little book and, little ebook and kind of put all of our thoughts on paper about paddling from obviously you know the technical side of things to how to get strong to setting up your equipment to you know we've got training pro training programs or training sessions and things to think about different cues to to keep in your mind and um yeah we sell those ebooks online and um it's gone crazy we didn't really expect it i guess we were like oh when we launched we're like oh we'll be happy if we sell you know 20 um but just the reach that we've had in australia but mainly internationally is pretty cool yeah the reach has been unreal and um you know we've had a lot of positive feedback about it as well and um especially people who are you know paddling locations where there isn't access to like a specific kite club or they have a training group who are training by themselves and um yeah we've you know the feedback's been unreal so yeah, it's been very encouraging. I think what's cool about being an athlete and um, is the fact that, you know, obviously Jordan and I, we're not physiologists, we're not nutritionists, we're not biomechanists, you know, we're not qualified in those areas at all. But when you're an athlete, you have to take control of yourself. So you have to kind of invest in learning about those areas with those experts. And um, so like our paddler booklet that we've made uh, is, kind of based on the knowledge that we have of paddling, which your average show blow paddling down the creek will never have access to. You know, they might have a club coach within their led little club system, but um, unless you kind of live and breathe it every day, you, you don't learn all these extra things that we know. So why keep it bottled up? You yeah. know, it's, it's information that should, you know, people should have access to. And so, yeah. Plug, like, plug it. it. What is it? Of, Tell where can people find out more? So you can go to um, paddler.co and, I mean, we're bad spellers, so P-A-D-D-L-R.co. <laughs> um, and you can, yeah, basically download it or follow us on Instagram at paddler. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we've gone a little bit quiet on it, obviously, since being at the Olympics. You've been busy. Um, but You've we're, got an excuse. We've been a little bit busy, yeah. but um, socials are coming back online this week and everything's back to normal as of this week. Um, but we, we also send out, 
three emails with um, every week with different paddling and uh, like advice and things that we kind of are thinking about at the time. So you Fantastic. don't you don't have to sign up for the book, but yeah, we love it. That's good. Why not share what we know? Exactly. That's what that's what you want to do out there and kind of you know spread it out there to to different places. I mean, I, I I'm sort of intrigued to see how you know the take up would be in somewhere like Tasmania. Obviously, we had. Uh, Dan do quite well in the in the slalom, mm. but I mean, is, is there any flat water Tasmanian uh, canoeists out there or kayakers out there that I need to be aware of, or do we need more? Do we need to get more Tasmanians? We've sold a few books in Tasmania actually. So we, because um, we call it paddling, um, you know, there's a real good crossover with ocean skis, uh, a little bit of a crossover with surf skis, but ocean skis and kayaking is very similar, and there's quite a few ocean ski paddlers in Tassie. Good. Um, which is crazy because it's so cold. Yeah, well. <laughs> good on them. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine you guys aren't sitting there with a the heater on right now like I am, so it's probably... Uh, no, we no, have no, the no. aircon blaring yes. up here in Darwin. <laughs> so that's the, beauty, that's the beauty about Brisbane in 2032. I'm, you know, technically we are having the Winter Olympics because they will be held in winter in Australia. So, uh, yeah, no, it's crazy. you know, and they say that Australia could never host the Winter Olympics. Well, they've been proven wrong. Um, we like to close out our interviews with a series of fun questions questions kind of getting to know you a little bit now this is based on a uh, little questionnaire that the canadian olympic team used to do back before rio and pyeongchang and we often you know use a different athlete that they've used and we try and find an athlete from your sport so i have found a canadian paddler by the name of cameron smedley now are we aware of cameron smedley at all do we do we know who he is (laughs) okay well then that doesn't help on some aspects but it does on many because you won't be able to you know guess his answers not that you're going to you're going to be answering your own but uh good to see you uh so all right i'm going to start off and um just both of you chime in with your answers i'm not going to force it down both of you if you one of you want to abstain from answering that's completely fine uh if you could choose any olympic host city where would it be um sydney 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 yep yeah Recycle it. Okay, it was good. It was a good city to have. Yeah, it. Recycle. I, you know, but it's it, they've got half the facilities ready to go, right? Well, probably more than half. So you know, get, get, get on get <laughs> on the page there. Um, what is the weirdest? Um, oh, oh say, sorry, um, Jordan. Go. I I thought you were both uh, saying Sydney. How rude of me. Go go for it, Jordan. Yeah, you, you gave me a weird look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I would um, I would like to see it go back. Oh, go to somewhere in Canada like Vancouver, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they had the, they had the winter. They give them the summer. Give them, give them the summer. Cold in winter. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I lived in Victoria there, so I kind of you know considered the summer hub of Canada. So I mean, you know, share it between Vancouver and Victoria. It would work. It's it's sunny enough there in summer. There we go. They would like it. Perfect. Yeah. Exactly. I like that thinking, Jordan. Good. Good answer. Um, what is the weirdest instruction a coach has ever given you? Oh. They're endless. <laughs> I'm not sure how to take this nowadays with all the commentary around it, but paddle like Pamela Anderson, which oh. means basically sit up straight with your boobs out right. and show your boobs to the shore. He was a little bit inappropriate. So in hindsight, not great, but that, made me sit up straight. <laughs> that is weird. Um, did Jordan, yeah. did, did, did yeah. the men get the same, Jordan? <laughs> <laughs> no, I um. Oh. I can't rem- I can't remember, but yeah, there's definitely there's been a few um, you know times you get some technique advice and you sort of go, oh, just 
that, I don't think that I don't think that's gonna work. <laughs> I don't think that's the thing. <laughs> wow, wow! I'm surprised I don't turn around and say, "Well, paddle like David Hasselhoff, maybe for the men." That could, yeah, you know, yeah. that kind of work there. Uh, now, homework for you both: if you want to do it, you don't have to. It's completely fine. On this questionnaire, they ask um, Cameron to draw a picture of himself. So if you both feel oh, bored God. in quarantine and want to do some homework, draw a picture <laughs> of yourselves and send it into us, and we'll put it on our social media. So there's a yeah, yeah. Do you take stick figures? Absolutely, because, of course. No, I can't draw. no, no, that's completely fine. Stick figures are very acceptable. Um, what is your favorite workout? I love going for a mountain bike ride. Okay. I'm, I'm laying paddling. Laying paddling? My body is made to paddle. <laughs> My body is not made for land exercise. <laughs> I, do so, we do so, I do so much paddling, I feel, and, um, yeah, whenever I get to go out on my mountain bike, I it's just, um, yeah, really special. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> and I really enjoy it. So, uh, Paris twenty four. If you get good enough, there you go. Quit the quit the kayaking and, and go out <laughs> bike. There's an opportunity. Um, if you could have lunch with any one person, who would it be? Um, Ash Barty. Ah, nice. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ah, oh, there you go. Reading his book at the moment, he seems like a very interesting person. So nice. That that would be one of those sort of uh, if you expand that into the who are the three people you'd go out to dinner with. I mean, Ash Barty, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, that would be a fun night. I could imagine. So <laughs> bloody hell, Jesus, that would be a good invitation to have. Um, what is your favourite sandwich? Um, chicken schnitty. Oh, good choice. <laughs> Vegemite and cheese toasty. Oh, look at that. The Australian and the good. I coffee, like it. Coffee. Making me hungry. <laughs> can't, really, can't really have too many of them in quarantine right now. So as soon as you get out of quarantine, no. is it like straight <laughs> to the schnitty and the Vegemite and cheese? <laughs> we actually had a palmy last night for dinner and it was all right. <laughs> nice. Okay. So they're, they're, they're amping up the food there. I like it. Good job. Um, Now, again, extra homework. If you want to do it, draw a picture of a Canadian animal. So... Um, <laughs> beaver. Yes. What else? Beaver. Yeah. Um, go for it. Um, although it looks like here Cameron's drawn. It look, I think it's a Canadian goose. I, I don't even know what that is, but it looks weird. Whatever it is. Good job there, Cameron. Um, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Uh, what? Mm-hmm. Um. Oh gosh. Elise doesn't like superheroes. <laughs> <movies. laughs> Wow, <laughs> embarrassing the wife, Jordan. I like it. <laughs> uh, finding a show on Netflix is not easy for us. <laughs> or whatever superpower Deadpool has, whatever that is. Okay. Sassy mouth, like quips and, uh, yeah, go along with go along with that. What, what's wrong with – I'm going to embarrass you now. What's wrong with superhero movies, Elise? Come on now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm more of a rom rom com type of girl. Okay, you know? <laughs> that works. Free, go see um, Free Guy when you get out. Quite funny. Uh, so if you like Ryan right, Reynolds, right. it's sort of not really superhero, more video gamey, but it's it's actually quite good. So, uh, Jordan, are you a DC or a Marvel man? Uh, I don't really discriminate. I don't really know the difference. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's good. Um, I'll watch both. Yeah, I'll watch both. <laughs> good. All right. Good answer. Um, what is the best candy in the world? Um, oh. Sour Strap. 
Mm. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Sour straps are delicious, but they have to be the strawberry sour straps. Okay, yeah. right. Has to be specific. <laughs> okay, so when you find something on Netflix, you're eating the strawberry sour straps. That's um, yeah. The, yeah. the agreement there. As a kid, who was uh, which team was your favourite sports team? Um, Brisbane Lions. Ah. Um. You know what? I don't think I really followed Jordan doesn't, team sport. Jordan doesn't follow team sport. <laughs> <laughs> Too busy watching so superhero movies. The first team he followed is um, bloody the F1 team since watching Drive to Survive and yeah, now, yeah. now he's obsessed. Nothing wrong with that. So, oh, well, okay. I was about to ask what team. Now, please tell me it's only McLaren because of Ricardo. That's the only reason. No, they, no. I, I really, I um, I just really like the history of McLaren. Oh, I think, um, okay. you know, they've been at the forefront for such a long time, especially being um, like a private team as well, not like a, um, a manufacturer, like a big car manufacturer either. Yeah. So. See, growing up in my house, uh, McLaren used to be a swear word. As a Ferrari fan, I, I wasn't too keen on them. But I, I <laughs> come around. I mean, you, you can't help but like them with Ricardo driving for them. So, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. So is it the okay, case, so did you guys follow the sport before Drive to Survive or did Drive to Survive turn you into F1 fans? Drive to Survive definitely turned us into F1 fans. And now we're obsessed. So now we're obsessed. It's working. Is, That's what they wanted to do. And yeah, look at that. It's working. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So, does that then lead you to uh, getting to Albert Park one year if you haven't already been one time? We, would we wanted to go this year. Yeah, <laughs> sort of got cancelled. It's worth it. I mean, it's um, if if I could recommend anything to do, going to a Grand Prix is such an incredible experience. And um, yeah, Melbourne is is just second best race I've ever been to in the world. I'll say Montreal does a very good Formula One race, but. Um, you know, oh, Albert Park is, is is incredibly special, and I will say, uh, just as a subtle plug for the sport of Formula One, uh, my my idol growing up, Michael Schumacher. There's a Michael Schumacher documentary dropping on Netflix in September, so um, if you oh, like, yeah, I have heard that. Yeah, I'm really keen to see it. Yeah, very much so. Looking forward to how that goes, uh, and also there, at least Brisbane Lions. I mean, you know, I'm a Carlton supporter. I I, I mean, Brisbane aren't the worst team <laughs> I could I could hear. I've heard plenty of Essendon supporters recently, so they've been blacklisted from the show. But that's uh, another. <laughs> Story. Um, what is your favourite sports movie? Cool Running. Cool Running, for sure. Great answer. Yes, absolutely. Is there any... I, I seem to be asking this a lot to our um, guests on the show because obviously there are certain sports movies you know from certain sports, but are there any kayaking movies out there? Um, I'd say definitely not. Feature <laughs> <laughs> films, I'd say. There's probably no feature films. No, I think there's a couple of like things on like the Red Bull TV with a few like international Red Bull paddlers, but not really. I'm surprised <laughs> J- J- James Bond could do a canoeing scene, couldn't he? Yeah, I mean, it just it depends like, on the type, you know. Because we had Kerry Potter on recently, and she talked about volleyball being in Top Gun, so she's like, "Does that count?" I'm like, "Well, sort of." So, I mean, you know, <laughs> canoeing in a James Bond movie. I mean, he's fenced before. Well, he's bobsled. Canoeing kayak in movies for sure. Yeah. Like when you, when we go to schools or corporates and you say, "Who you paddled kite before?" Most people have put their hands up. So I'm sure it's. It's in movies. <laughs> yeah, we'll find it. People can, people can write in. There's probably an obvious one that we're missing out on here. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? What? I'm pretty happy with the Gold Coast. Yeah? Yeah. I think it's all right. Yeah. You're, you're allowed um, to stay there. <laughs> I 
Yeah, I don't know. I think we're very lucky where we yeah. live. <laughs> Take we'll it. take Queensland at the moment. I feel like Queensland is dodging COVID bullets left, right and centre. Yes. So happy days. Uh, yes, very Fingers much crossed. so. Yeah. And, and 11 years' time, it's going to be an Olympic city up that way. So, again, you know, I know exactly. you, very good. you're not focused on, on uh, Paris right now, but just saying, like, keep it going for another Watch 11, you know. Come on, it's not that far away, right? Um, Maybe our kids will. Hey, exactly. You could have eleven-year-olds going, uh, going to them. I mean, yeah. that was youngest ever Olympians, basically. Set some records, yeah. um, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Obviously, we got you to to, to plug uh, Paddler before, but in terms of personal Instagram, Twitter, places like that, if you want to plug anything, uh, take this opportunity. Plug where people can follow and stay up to date with what you guys are up to. Um, basically, we're well. I'm on Instagram a fair bit. Elise Wood underscore. Jordan is kind of. <laughs> he shares a lot of what I share. If you, uh, if anyone wants to follow me, my Instagram is uh, Jordan ninety four Wood. Um, sometimes I post twice a week. Sometimes I won't part, post for a year. So, and a lot of the time it's that dog. So oh, if you want right. kayaking content? Follow me. If you want. If you want Beagle content, follow Jordan. I, I think Jordan just got more followers, let's be honest. It's all about the dogs, right? <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how does your Beagle not have its own Instagram? I mean, my cat has its oh, own yeah, Instagram. He's got more followers than all of us. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. At home with Beagle. Wow. <laughs> Perfect. That's, that's pretty funny. That's why you do these interviews. It's just to get the gram followers up for your dog. That's kind of, you know, yeah. what it comes down to. It's no, like, home with the Beagle is Insta-famous. Wow. It's pretty funny. That's good. Parents are Olympians. Grandparents are Olympians. I mean, my goodness, this is yeah. one spoiled dog. That's, uh, that's, that's all I'll say. Guys, it has been a lot of fun having you on the show today to learn everything uh, about the sport and about your careers and everything. And bugger it, I don't care what you both say. Good luck for Paris in 2024. I'm sure we'll be cheering you both on in three years' time. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. And a massive thanks to both Elise and Jordan. They're fun, insightful, and uh, love that chat. And it's a sport, as I said in that interview, and we said a lot during Tokyo, that it's just such a fun sport, canoe, kayak. Honestly, more entertaining than rowing. And I like their reference in there that, well, they're probably smarter because rowers go backwards. So therefore, canoers and kayakers go forward. So they're definitely more smarter athletes. No offense to our rowing athletes on there. We'll have some <laughs> rowing athletes coming up soon, actually. So uh, if you're listening to this, future rowing athletes, it's all in good fun. Please still come on the show. Uh, next week, very, very exciting. We Another taste. This is three weeks in a row now that we've got athletes from sports that we've never had on the show. Our very first gymnast on the show next week, trampolinist to be precise, and Australia's only ever Olympic medalist in the sport of gymnastics, Jai Wallace. Jumping Jai, well, the other Jumping Jai, there were two Jumping Jais in Sydney. One was referred to as Jumping Jai, but we all know that Jai Wallace is also a Jumping Jai. And a great chat with Jai Wallace goes into his history, how he got into the sport, a unique way of getting into professional trampolining, essentially, rather than just the fun trampolining that all Australians like to do in the backyard. Talks us all about the experiences in the 90s of the World Circuit and what it was like when it was announced that trampolining was going to be an Olympic sport and just why he seemed destined to become an Olympian. A very fun story about his history around the Olympics and how it all just seemed to come together for him to become an Olympian and in his own home country as well. And we also go into a lot of details talking to him about why his silver medal win 
He's often more remembered than some of Australia's gold medal winners from the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games. So great chat with Jai. I know you're going to enjoy it. So make sure to tune into that one next week. In the meantime, you know what to do at this point on. Subscribe on all the relevant podcast channels so you don't miss any episode. Go back and listen to our past ones and stay up to date with our future ones as well. Leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And social media, of course, Twitter, uh, Instagram, I was to say Spotify. That's not quite social media. Do that in the, the whole subscribe to the podcast things. Twitter, Instagram. Facebook, they're the ones I'm trying to say. Stay up to date with everything to do with Off the Podium. Shoot us a message, say hello, tell us who you'd like to have on the show, if there's anyone in particular you'd like us to uh, track down and get on there and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. So uh, plenty of exciting interviews and great things to come along the way. Thanks again to Elise and Jordan. My name is Ben. This has been Off the Podium and we'll speak to you next time. Good night. Turning Japanese up, they come turning Japanese up, really so